Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me on this podcast all about epigenetics, or more specifically, the epigenetic control of gene expression. It's quite a technical uh, subject that I'll be talking about, so if there are any, and hopefully there are students of mine that are listening, I think this is more aimed at those studying for the A-level or IB, although hopefully those who are studying for GCSEs and or maybe a little bit younger, we'll still be able to take some ideas from this, but we are going to cover some quite technical biology in this podcast. Now, because of that, I want—I really want to break it down and start in the same way that I start the lesson that I teach uh, on this with my year 13s. And I want to give an example of something which I know, Matt, seemed a little bit random at first, but it really, can, to me, conveys what epigenetics is all about. So if you just bear with this for just a moment, I want you to imagine uh, Usain Bolt, 100 meter sprinter. Now he covers 100 meters in about 9.58 seconds, which is incredible. And if I asked you, uh, would you think that Bolt has inherent athletic ability? I would expect you to say yes, and I would, because that's a phenomenal uh, achievement. That's incredibly fast, 100 meters in, in under 10 seconds. Now, I want you to imagine that we would take a load of hurdles, or one hurdle even, and just put it into the 100 meter track at random. Yes, that would massively slow Bolt down, but would we say that his inherent ability has been altered? Perhaps not, because what we've done is we, we've changed the track, but that's an environmental variable that we've introduced. We haven't really changed his inherent running ability. Although I know you could argue that he'd have to run differently, but his inherent athletic ability hasn't really changed. It's what we've changed is the environment that he's running in. Now, I I know it seems a bit of a a tenuous link, but if you apply that to epigenetics, epigenetics is all about DNA expression. But DNA expression and changes in DNA expression, not because we're changing the DNA itself, but because of environmental factors. We know that we can change the way DNA expressed without even changing the DNA itself. And it's this. This is what epigenetics is all about. It's the study of heritable changes, so things that we can inherit, to gene function and expression that are a result of environmental factors and not the result of altering the base sequence of DNA itself. That's where I was really going with the whole bolt thing, that we're not... It's the environmental factor, the hurdle, that's changed the setup. We're not changing Bolt physically himself. Environmental influences can very subtly alter the genetic inheritance of an organism's offspring. Now, there are a number of examples here. Diet, stress, toxins, all can have very subtle influences on genetic inheritance. And you might think that's quite odd. You might think, how how can stress levels suddenly change the genes or genetic expression of, of what my offspring may have? But that's the purpose of this podcast, to just really talk about and highlight an area of biology that is fascinating, rather complex, uh, and only really recently understood. I'll give you another uh, particular case study, another example. And for this, I want to talk about queen bees. See, the larvae that develop into workers and queens are genetically identical. 
But the Queen, however, is fed only royal jelly for her entire life. Now, as a result of her royal jelly diet, the Queen will develop ovaries and a larger abdomen for egg laying, while the workers will be sterile. She'll also develop queen-like behaviours, you could say, such as the instincts to kill rivals. Now here is an, a brilliant example of where the diet has actually brought about significant changes that could be reflected and will be reflected in the offspring. Changes of gene expression that we're seeing as a result of an environmental factor. So let's get really into the biology behind epigenetics and for that we need to just do a little recap in terms of DNA structure. So DNA is wound, human DNA is wound around histone proteins to form what we call the nucleosome. Now typically eight histones form about one nucleosome. So these proteins, really if you think of these proteins as a way to hold up these chromosomes blocks of DNA we have these histone proteins that form nucleosomes and eight together eight histone proteins typically form one nucleosome now these nucleosomes are then folded in complex ways to form something which we call chromatin now that chromatin is then coiled with other proteins to form the chromosome so what we've got is this really build up of these uh, structures basic molecule of DNA with histone proteins to form nucleosomes and the nucleosomes get folded up even more to form chromatin and then we call that up even more and then that's what our chromosome actually is. Now there are five key principles that I talk about when I teach this topic and I'd like to talk you through these five key things. The DNA, the histones and those associated proteins that I mentioned are covered in chemicals called tags. Now these tags form a second layer known as the epigenome. Environmental factors cause the chemical tags to adjust the, I guess you could say the wrapping or unwrapping of the DNA via enzymes. And so in doing that what they're doing is switching genes on and off. So the epigenome therefore determines and changes more crucially, the shape of the DNA histone complex. So it's changing these chemical tags that will basically turn genes on and turn them off. And if the gene is turned on, then ultimately we can have transcription, translation, we can get a protein formed. And that's the really crucial thing. Now, if the DNA is more tightly packed, we call that heterochromatin. And when it's tightly packed, the gene cannot be accessed by the enzyme RNA polymerase or the transcriptional factors. So what happens ultimately is that the gene is switched off. If the DNA is more loosely packed, however, we call that euchromatin and the gene can be accessed and it can be expressed. So what we say is that the gene ultimately is switched on. So the epigenome really is an accumulation of signals it has received from within the cells of the fetus and nutrition provided by the mother, but also after birth through life from environmental and internal factors such as hormones. Environmental signals can stimulate proteins to carry their message into the nucleus, which can in turn cause a specific protein to bind 
to a specific sequence of DNA bases. Now, what that leads to are two particular things, acetylation and methylation. Acetylation of histones, which will either activate or inhibit a gene, or methylation or methylation of DNA by attracting enzymes that can add or remove methyl groups. So let's take the first of these two. Let's take acetylation. Acetylation is the addition of acetyl groups to the histones. And they're taken from what's called acetyl coenzyme A. Now this causes the nucleosomes that I mentioned to form less tightly. And so transcription can occur. Deacetylation is the removal of acetyl groups from the histones. And for that, we need the enzyme histone deacetylase, or HDAC, as it's sometimes referred to. Now, in this case, this causes stronger positive charges on the histones, increasing their attraction to phosphate groups in DNA, therefore leading to a more tightly packed structure, which is completely inaccessible to gene transcription. And this phenomenon is known as epigenetic gene silencing. So let's talk a little bit about methylation. It's the addition of a methyl group to the cytosine bases of DNA. So methylated or methylated DNA is usually silenced. Thus genes are not transcribed to M or messenger RNA. But methylation of cytosine turns off gene expression by changing the state of the chromatin. And it does this by two things. It prevents the binding of transcriptional factors, but it also attracts proteins that condense the DNA histone complex, forming that heterochromatin that I mentioned. So there's quite a, a technical look at epigenetics and how acetylation of histones and methylation of DNA ultimately allows for uh, changing of these of these tags and the kind of unwinding or wrapping up of DNA and it's that will dictate whether the gene is transcribed or not. Now one of the most interesting uh, questions that I find myself asking when I teach about methylation and acetylation is how can these two things lead to cancer and that's what I'd like to discuss for the second part of the podcast epigenetics in relation to disease specifically as well how we can control gene expression in this case so again let's have a little bit of an overview so epigenetic changes whilst completely part of normal development have been linked with diseases including cancer an inactive gene may become active and vice versa so, for example, patients with colorectal cancer are often found to have less methylation. Now, what that means is that the genes would essentially be turned on. It's also been observed that where promoter regions have more methylation, an active gene is switched off. Increased methylation can also silence genes that would normally help DNA repair. So that would therefore encourage mutant cells to develop. Epigenetic treatments try to counteract these changes by using drugs to inhibit certain enzymes that control either histone acetylation or DNA methylation. But importantly, uh, a really cr a crucial thing to consider is that the drugs must only target cancer cells as therapy has the potential to damage actual healthy cells. And the epigenetic treatment on offer can also be used diagnostically 
as many cancer tissue types display what would say is unique patterns of DNA methylation or histone acetylation. And you might think, well, where would the benefit be? And it's because that really allows for early diagnosis, diagnosis rather, and a better prognosis, particularly as we found in those with brain disorders and arthritis. So the key thing here to remember uh, moving forward is that regulation of gene expression can occur at any stage in the process from getting to one getting having a sample of dna to a protein because then you have transcription that forms messenger rna and then translation to form the protein and in terms of modification there's multiple stages that we can really consider there's the transcriptional the post-transcriptional the translational or post-translational stages so what i want to do is just talk about the post-transcriptional stage of protein synthesis so that's once we've produced, if you like, our messenger RNA. Because it's here where we can actually regulate gene expression. We can control it in a way. So we talk about epigenetics being about environmental factors altering DNA expression. Here we can actually alter it ourselves. So I'd like to look about, or talk about rather, post-transcriptional regulation of gene expression in RNA I, or what's called RNA interference. In eukaryotes and most prokaryotes, inhibiting translation of messenger RNA prevents polypeptide synthesis. There's an enzyme called DICER. It's a gr actually a categories, big group of enzymes. The DICER enzymes breaks down double-stranded messenger RNA into smaller pieces called short interfering or SI RNA. And after binding with RISE, I call it RISC enzyme, and RISE stands for RNA-induced silencing complex enzymes, quite a mouthful there, degradation occurs and it leaves behind a single SI RNA strand attached, which can then guide the enzyme, the RISC enzyme, to the messenger RNA by lining up complementary base pairs. Now what happens is that the messenger RNA is then cut into smaller sections, so it's no longer able to be translated into a polypeptide. So the gene, therefore, is not expressed. Now this process allows us to identify the role of genes by observing the effect when we block them. But it also allows us to prevent certain genetic diseases by using short interfering RNA to block genes. So this is the kind of development from the early epigenetic studies that we've got, we're now able to look at disease and look at how we can affect the kind of the epigenome, how we can change DNA expression. Uh, a good example uh, is that of Huntington's, Huntington's disease. It's a disorder in which the protein produced by a mutant gene causes progressive death of cells in the brain. And the cells of sufferers from this condition frequently contain one mutant gene and one normal gene. Now, short-interfering RNA could be used in the treatment of those conditions. Because what we have is that DNA codes for the short-interfering RNA. And that short RNA, or short-interfering RNA rather, produced is specific to the messenger RNA made by the Huntington gene. So when the short, if again, if I just relay the story a bit in this context, when the short interfering RNA or the siRNA joins with the protein risk to form the silencing complex, that complex can then join to the Huntington mRNA and destroy it. 
So what it means ultimately is that the Huntington MRA can't be translated into the Huntington protein and so it reduces the symptoms of the disease. I think that's where I'm going to pause, I think, on this particular podcast on epigenetics. Um, there's a few other areas that I'd like to touch on, but I'd, I'll touch on those in separate podcasts. As I said, a little bit more of a technical uh, one than I would uh, typically make, but it's a fascinating area of uh, genetics. And all that's left for me to say is a big thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast.